Diego. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, look, if you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, I hope that you'll support that station. If you're listening in New York City on WBAI, I hope you'll support that station as well. Uh, this is the first time I've uh, been streaming the show on Facebook for a while. I've been, been busy, and even this is uh, streaming live a day early because uh, I'm heading out of town for the next couple of days. So I want to thank you for checking us out on Facebook as well. And, of course, we do take the show and we put it up as a podcast after the fact so you can catch this show anytime. Of course, you can go on the WPFW and WBAI uh, archive uh, page and catch the shows after the fact as well. You can donate to either one of those stations. Uh, I appreciate the fact that they, they give me a space on their broadcast grid to, uh, to get these messages out and to, to offer a perspective that has not been considered. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit today, a, a perspective that perhaps isn't considered. I'm going to talk about history. Who writes it? What's it? What is the purpose of writing it? Is it really history, or, or history, or is it propaganda? Uh, I posted a um, a comment on Facebook this week, and I asked the question: Can you imagine um, teaching Black history and leaving out slavery, or Jim Crow, or the Civil Rights era? You know, the, the figures involved in any of that stuff. Can you imagine teaching that history? I mean, or how about um, you know covering World War? and not talking about the Holocaust or any of that stuff. Can you imagine leaving out the ugly parts of history? Because that's what Native people experience. And what we're taught as a period of history that came before discovery, um, maybe had a little bit of, uh, you know, colonization where, you know, you tell happy little stories about happy little Indians and happy little pilgrims or promote some, the false myth about Pocahontas saving John Smith's life or, you know, or, or any number of um, softened up uh, stories about about native people and and how rich and beautiful our culture is. Every, everybody loves to hear about native people when we're talking about spirituality, you know, or arts and crafts or, or or any of that stuff. They don't like to necessarily hear about wounded knee, you know, the massacre or the the standoff. They don't like to necessarily necessarily go through what took place at Standing Rock or any of our environmental fights. And in fact. None of that stuff is taught. So, you know, the question often, you know, is posed about who writes history, uh, and they say the, the victors write history. Well, if the history is written in such a way that it depends on who writes it as far as, you know, what is going to be in that content, is it really history? I mean, history should be just matter of fact, right? You, you should kind of leave in the ugliness of, uh, you know, of conflicts, you should, you should be, all of that stuff should be a part of it. And if it's not, how much is propaganda? I mean, and look, and I'm not just talking about this from a native perspective. I mean, I, I can't help but think about the United States dropping two atomic bombs on the small island nation of Japan at the, at, in the waning months of what would have ended that conflict anyway. Um, you know, is, is, does anybody ever offer the perspective that Japan had in terms of U.S. aggression and U.S. military buildup? I mean, hell, the U.S. took over the Hawaiian kingdom. They, they literally launched a coup to take over the Hawaiian kingdom to give them a little bit more presence and a little more supremacy, if you will, in the, in the Pacific uh, frontier, the Pacific uh, and South Pacific. So... Was Japan needlessly uh, concerned about the United States buildup? You know, 
and all and, and all that would would come with the Spanish American War and all that stuff. I mean, I I think if you if you told history from uh, from just a, a, a from a standing of a matters matters of fact, you would not necessarily always paint the United States as the hero because that's the way history is taught and. Schools are used, public schools are used as platforms for this propaganda. I mean, there's no question that public schooling is about uh, instilling patriotism in, in its students. And, you know, look, I'm not even saying that's completely wrong. What's, com what's wrong is leaving out the major parts of, uh, of, of American history so you don't have to ever confront guilt or consequences associated with that stuff. You know, again, from a Native perspective, there's so much of our history that is never told. And because it's not told, we, most people have no idea who we are. Uh, and in fact, there's a fairly large percentage of the American population that doesn't know Native people still exist. And they certainly don't know the conditions that we exist in. You know, are we sovereign nations or are we Americans? I mean, Look, that's a question even for Native people themselves, because our identities have been so altered by everything from Hollywood to government policy to literature to television and media in general. There, are, there is a significant segment of the Native population who refuses to accept U.S. citizenship. I'm, am I'm among those. Now, I am not, my refusal to accept U.S. citizenship is the fact that it, that it is that they attempt to impose it upon us, forcibly impose it upon us, just like they do with the Hawaiian, you know, with Native Hawaiian people. So do we have a right to reject that? And what does that mean? If we're, if we're living in an area that the United States is still claiming, is claiming that is their land, then what is our status? Well, many Native people live on their ancestral homelands. They live on what is recognized as Native lands. Now, even that's a big question mark. I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, and there is much information, there is significant historical data, facts, that suggest that this land is not part of the United States. That makes people shake their head. I remember my friend Ross John, when he was sitting on council for the Seneca Nation, they entertained a, a meeting with law enforcement, and, they, and he flat out told, all of the law enforcement representatives there, FBI, ATF, the Justice Department, all of them, you're not in the United States right now. You're on Seneca land. And our history is viewed differently than yours. Your heroes are not our heroes. So this is the complication because we're, we're taught one version of history, and it isn't oftentimes very accurate. And in fact, it, it, is, it has been propagandized. I mean, again... Let's visit how Native history is taught in school. You know, we're, we're taught as a people of the past. There is never any, look, they don't even teach history necessarily just as history. When I was a kid, they called it social studies. And that included history, it included geography, it included, you know, uh, basically studies of societies. Sometimes ancient societies, sometimes American societies. But there, when you teach history as a timeline and you only include a specific people in one segment of that timeline, you never mentioned us again, then the question ends up being, where did we go? Did we disappear? Were we eliminated? Were we um, exterminated? Because 
that history suggests, yes, there was attempts to exterminate us. Yes, there was attempts to, well, and genocide was committed against Native people. And genocide isn't just genocide if it's successful. Even a failed attempt at genocide, if it meets the standards for the international definition of genocide, it's still genocide, all or in part. You don't have to kill every person to, to say that you've committed genocide. If you kill a significant portion of our population with the intent to change us completely over, if you rip our kids away from our homes and you send them off to boarding schools or, or take as much as 40 or 50% of our population of children and have them raised by white people to eliminate our identity, yeah, that's all genocide. If you do something to eliminate our, the, our young women from being able to have children, so sterilization programs, yes, they existed in the United States. Land of the home, uh, home of the brave, or what? Land of the free, home of the brave. That's what you did. That's what your country did. Look, it wasn't just that we got called merciless Indian savages in your foundational document, the Declaration of Independence. And it wasn't just that part of that declaration was, was put out there because you wanted to take our lands. And, and, and King George was trying to put brakes on that. It's everything from there. Like I said, can you really teach black history and not talk about slavery? Not talk about Jim Crow and racism and segregation and, and all that stuff? Of course not. You wouldn't dream of it. And the reason you wouldn't dream of it is because black people play a role in how that story is told in school curriculums, in history books, all of it. Jewish people play a role in how the Holocaust is written of and spoken of. But Native people, we are never sit sitting at the table for those textbook um, writers. Today, if I open up a, a textbook used in school today, it still will make the claim that Pocahontas saved John Smith's life. When the fact of the matter is, they may not have ever even met. At the time John Smith was, was, uh, was terrorizing Native people, Pocahontas was a, was a little girl. She was, she was you know, 10, 11 years old. So the idea that this, that this little girl, you know, laid her head on, on the chopping block to prevent you know, John Smith from getting uh, executed is, is just BS. I mean, it, it's not true. And, you know, of course, Disney will make it sound like there was a romance involved between the two. Look, when you look at the historical record and the journals that were written, you don't find John Smith even mentioning Pocahontas until she's already becoming a little bit of a celebrity in Europe when she was shipped off there, indoctrinated into Christian faith, married off to a tobacco baron, and then got sick and died. I mean, then all of a sudden, because she was, you know, all the talk in Europe, John Smith starts writing about her. I mean, it's, it's just crap. And that's the stuff that stays in the history books. So I got to ask the question is who are the heroes here? Yeah, when you look at you know all the conversation about the Supreme Court and the you know the strict constructionalists, the originalists, and the ones who are hell bent on you know uh, maintaining what the founding fathers in, intended. Well, well, let's talk about these founding fathers because you know what they were kind of uh, they were white supremacists. I mean, they all had slaves. They didn't believe in liberty for all. They meant for liberty for all white men. You know, and the crazy part is, again, going back to the Declaration of Independence, they, had, they were promoting and, and were pissed that the king would not let 
larger uh, numbers of European immigrants to come to the United States, to the, uh, the colonies, I should say. Why? <clears throat> well, the colonies wanted more, a greater population. And they, you know, they couldn't produce fast enough, but they knew a whole lot of white people still in Europe. So they wanted more to come. They wanted more to come, and they wanted to take more native land. Why? Because that's how America built its wealth, by stealing, by slavery. That's what they did. I mean, look, <laughs> I listen to sometimes how the United States characterizes China's um, economic development and the fact that you know, their economy has roared you know, pretty strongly for, for a number of years. And, you know, and then you, you address how China was able to you know, build a, a strong middle class and they, um, you know, they, they, they eliminated much of the poverty and that kind of stuff. However you feel about how they did it, let's be clear, they didn't do it with slavery and they didn't do it by, by mass dispossession of lands from indigenous people. No, those indigenous people were Chinese. But if you look at how the United States managed to continue, every, I mean, every time they, they needed you know, a, to bolster their economy, they just took more land. They just took, they expanded, manifest destiny. And they don't treat it as if it was the taking. They treat it as if it was somehow a God-given prerogative for the United States to do this kind of stuff. So they, they tie it to the religion. The, the doctrine of Christian discovery is one of the foundational elements of the United States doing everything from, uh, from building an economy based on slavery and from the, the mass murders of native peoples, dispossession of lands, and the outright fraud that the United States commits with every treaty they enter into. And I say it's fraud be, not just because the treaties were broken, one of the things that's obvious is that the treaties weren't, weren't just broken. There was never an intention to, to fulfill their obligation in the first place, in, in any of it, whether it was paying for lands that they, you know, that they were coercing out of the control of Native peoples, whether it was food that they were supposed to supply in exchange for destroying our, our normal ways of life. The United States couldn't fulfill almost any of its obligations. The Trail of Tears, the Trail of Tears isn't just the forced march of Cherokee you know, to Oklahoma. It's the failure of the United States to ever provide any of the resources that they promised for not just that trip, but what would happen when they got there. The long march that the, you know, that the Navajo, uh, the, the Nay went through. Every situation, the Homestead Act, <laughs> signed by Lincoln, another one of American heroes, all of these things that were done were never fulfilled on the backside. You know, in a fairly recent court case where Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion on the McGirt decision, which everybody praised as this great, you know, landmark decision that was recognizing native sovereignty and native lands. He said that there was a promise at the end of the Trail of Tears. And, and his, his point is that that promise is not being fulfilled. But if you say that, are you ignoring the, what the trail, why they called it the Trail of Tears in the first place? It wasn't just the question of whether there was a promise at the other end. It, it was the atrocity of the Trail of Tears in the first place. Promise or no promise. Fulfilled promise or not fulfilled promise. See, we ignore all this stuff because most people don't know the history. And 
The thing is, you don't even realize that you don't care about that history until you hear some of it. Then, you, then you're, you're left with the question, why, don't, why didn't I know this? Look, as, as I was doing events on a fairly regular basis in New York, while I was doing the show, I would, I would make the trip down and once a month I would try to do something. I'd screen a film or bring in speakers or maybe you know performing artists of some sort. But as we were addressing issues, the most common theme that I got back from the folks that attended my events was that they felt betrayed by their, uh, you know, by their education. I've got a master's degree in history. I've got a PhD. I've got this. How do I not know this? Well, it, it becomes particularly concerning that in an age of information that we live in now, where everything is available, that people still don't know. Because part of, part of it is they don't know to look. They don't know the questions to ask. They don't ask the questions about Native history because we're a small population. We don't, we don't impact many people li people's lives. <laughs> we have a bigger impact over white people when we tell them they can't play Indian uh, because of their school mascots. That, in many regards, is a major conflict that we have with non-Native people. Their obsession with playing Indian because their school mascot was Indian Raiders, Redskins, you know, Redmen, whatever, Savages, Warriors. Yeah, part of the, the reason I confront that is because of the mistelling of history, the misrepresentation of history, the misrepresentation of those stereotypes that schools put forward through their mascots, through their failure to teach history, or the false history that they teach in the first place. Look, none of the schools that have native mascots ever said, you know what, we have a native mascot. We should put a little bit more concentration into our global studies, our history, our social studies and history class to, to teach a little bit more. No, they don't. You know, instead, I'll hear it all the time. Oh, we are, this, our township is, is rich with native history. Yeah, well, what is it? Hell, half of the schools that have a native mascot can't even tell you what the nation is, what, what native people their mascot was there to represent. Uh, well, we're, yeah, we're the Cambridge Indians, yeah? What Indians? You know, what nation, what, what tribe are you claiming that you, your mascot represents? They can't even tell you. Or when they use these other phrases like chiefs or, or savages or, you know, warriors, they, they can't tell you, well... Well, the town's named after native people. It's got a native name to it. That, you know, yeah, it's been somewhat altered and bastardized. But so they'll use the name of a county or a river or a landmark or a township as as some claim towards trying to take our identity. In, and they don't even take a real identity; they make one up. And because there's no historical record, and since there's no continuity in teaching about native people. They get away with it. Look, this idea of altering Native identity is, is and has been so pervasive that it even affected how we represented ourselves. I've, said, I've mentioned this before. Look, we had to regain our knowledge of how we dressed, what our music was, what our ceremonies was, what the language teaches us. Even things like a headdress. I've seen representatives of the Haudenosaunee wearing Plains Indian headdresses back in the 40s and the 50s, earlier in that, and, and right up into the 60s. Why? Because that's the way we, Native people were supposed to look. That's what, what white people perceived as what a Native person looked like. They didn't know what a gustoa was. They didn't know the orientation of, of, of 
two or three or one one feathers, what, what that meant. We we had lost some of that. And we had to regain that knowledge. And we regained it because we did have people who retained it. We had language. We had we have these things that that enabled us to go back, almost go back in time. But even when we go back in time, there, there, there becomes the question, well, well, how do we contemporize our existence? How do we convince people that we're still here? This is the challenge, especially when Hollywood, when television, Netflix, <laughs> and when history books are misrepresenting our existence. Not just our past existence, not just the history, but they misrepresent who we are. There, look, I talk a lot about the doctrine of Christian discovery. And I, and I read and I listen to what others say about it. Some I agree with wholeheartedly, some not so much. The problem that I have with, with how some of this stuff is represented, they don't talk about the contradiction. I mean, th just think about this. Again, history you don't know. Oftentimes people will talk about the Canandaigua Treaty. And I've listened to Native people say, oh, it's a seminal treaty for the Six Nations. Well, I don't necessarily agree. It's not a great treaty. It, there's, there's much about it that, that flat out sucks. I mean, it, it's about land sessions. But the thing I will say about the Canandaigua Treaty, it mentions three times that the United States acknowledges that the land that we live on, the, the land that's detailed in the treaty, that it's ours. And that the United States will never claim it. Nor will they disturb us in the free use and enjoyment of that land nor will they disturb our friends and allies who, who join with us in, in enjoying that land. So it's mentioned three times. And this is a treaty that was negotiated during Washington's administration. And it could not be more clear about possession of land. But you, move, you fast forward 29 years, and you have a chief justice of the Supreme Court that codifies into law this notion of the doctrine of discovery, Christian discovery. That when the Christian nations of Europe came here, they got to assert claim to the title to the land. Why? You know, some will say, and, I, and look, I've even heard Native people say it. Oh, Native people didn't understand the concept of land ownership. Look, we understood it. We just rejected it. We just rejected that a human being could own something that will obviously outlive them. And so when we talk about land ownership, we always refer, refer to the land being owned by the future generations, that we are merely the caretakers of the land, the stewards of the land. There's a story about a white man who goes into a native territory to, um, to express an interest in buying it, and he asks you know, the, the first native people he sees, well, who um, is the owner here? And an old man says, uh, no, the owner's not here yet. And they said, well, when do you expect him? And, and the, the old man kind of casually looks and he sees a, a pregnant girl doing, uh, doing some tasks and says, oh, about six months from now, the owner will be back. So the white man comes back six months later. And each time he is presented with this idea that the, that the owners aren't there yet, that they haven't arrived yet. And it goes to this, this idea that we had that once you are born, you are, you are now a caretaker for the future generation. The owner is always going to be the future generation. And not necessarily just a future generation of men or human beings. That the land belongs to the future. That we are only here uh, for a short time compared to the land. So it's not that we didn't understand the concept. 
we just rejected the European notion of land ownership and that land could be bought and sold. And um, I mean, we defended land, we defended territory, but not from a from a ownership standpoint. And that's something the United States spent 200 years trying to eradicate this notion that we would defend and occupy lands and then claim a right to those lands through that occupation. And the whole argument was always, oh, yeah, but they didn't understand ownership, so they don't own it. They just occupy it. They're, they're like the animals that live here. They have a right to occupancy. One, and that right wasn't even respected. But that's what the, the Marshall Court in 1823 would say. So they would codify this notion that once a Christian people came upon a land occupied by pagans and heathens, Saracens as they called, that they could just take everything, our freedom, our stuff, our lands, our children. That is a barbaric and bizarre concept. Yet it's embedded in U.S. law. And it's U.S. law that is upheld even in these Supreme Court rulings. Everybody will praise, oh, ICWA withstood a challenge at the Supreme Court. The reason it was able to withstand a challenge at the Supreme Court is because they asserted that Congress has this ultimate authority over our lives and that they could express that authority over states. They never addressed how they got that authority from us because that history isn't taught. And in this situation, there is no history to be taught. There's no transfer of sovereignty from native peoples. And look, we're also 700 plus distinct native peoples. And no, we weren't conquered. And in fact, John Marshall in that Supreme Court ruling, uh, uh, the case called Johnson v. McIntosh, basically talk about this extravagant pretension of converting discovery into conquest. And basically we said, look, if you can make that claim in the beginning that discovery was the same as conquest and then sustain that claim and take land under that premise and hold that land, build a nation, build communities out of that, then that lie becomes true and it becomes unquestionable. And I say no. A lie is always questionable. And it doesn't matter how many times you repeat it, how many people believe it. A falsehood could and should always be questioned. It should always be scrutinized. And look, if it's only scrutinized by us, a people whose population has been diminished to less than one-tenth one of one percent of the U.S. population, yeah, we're, it's hard to be heard. So we, we, we talk about history, the truth of it. And look, there's no question that when we teach history, we're going to have a bit of perspective that's different than when, when white historians do. I mean, like I said, as, as I engage in the research and, uh, you know, and the reading and the listening to what other Native people say about the doctrine of Christian discovery, I think many of the Native people talking about it get, get it wrong. I'm in, I'm in the camp with Stephen Newcomb or uh, Peter Dorico, as I've mentioned on the show recently. Those are the people who I concur with. But some of these others who would suggest that, you know, that, that for, for one thing, as they sit here today, they're indifferent about their own identity. 
I, I listen to, to native people or people who claim to be native talk about, you know, we the people. Talk about, you know, our government, meaning the federal government. You know, our armies never losing a war. I mean, even as they're, even as they're having conversations about the U.S. Army's raiding and destroying and massacring native people, they, they kind of fall back into that whole idea of assimilation and indoctrination. They can't help but call the United States their country. And when I say that, I'm not talking about real estate. I'm talking about the, all, the whole of it. I mean, that, that they are patriotic Americans. You know, I, I, I say that I'm, I'm not necessarily big on powwows. And part of the reason is that, that the majority of powwows that I see listed on social media, they call them veterans powwows. So you're going to have this native event, and you're going to dedicate it. Seneca Nation just went through theirs. They're going to dedicate it towards those men and women who enlisted in the very armies that waged war against our people. And then, and in doing so, you become part of that military industrial complex that is, that is doing the same thing to other peoples in, in the world. I, I don't, look, I don't condemn somebody for joining the military. But I do reject the notion that they did it for us, they did it for our territories to defend our land. No, the United States hasn't been attacked. The closest thing to, to an attack the United States ever had was the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that was an illegal occupation that the United States was in the throes of, uh, of, of still uh, you know, asserting and, and, and defending. Oh, yeah, we can go back to you know, the War of 1812 and you know, the part of the, the lingering conflicts of the Revolutionary War. But, you know, look, that's, that's, that's white people fighting white people for the most part and then dragging, dragging our asses into the conflict. And we ultimately are the losers. It didn't matter if we felt like we had an obligation to, uh, you know, to defend our relationship with Great Britain or in some way side with the, with the colonists. We, we end up losing land either way. We end up being the victims of that kind of violence regardless. I mean, we, I, I hear it all the time. Oh, the Oneidas fought on the side of the Americans. Well, how did that work out for them? They got their land reduced to 32 acres in their original homeland. And then in the process of fighting to assert and, and build more land back, the liberal darling of the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, cites the doctrine of Christian discovery to say that they can't reacquire it. It doesn't matter how they lost it. Once... Once white folks came here, Christian white folks, and here she's Jewish. But she cites the doctrine of discovery. She leaves the word Christian out, but that's what it is. It wasn't just the nations of Europe. It was the Christian nations of Europe. Those were the, were the colonizers. Those were the imperial forces of the uh, imperialistic forces of, of Europe. And those are the ones who were sanctioned by the Vatican to spread Christendom. So the Jewish lady of the court cites the doctrine of Christian discovery as their first footnote in ruling against the Oneidas, reclaiming their own land. And that's just bizarre. I mean, and, and, and the way she does it, she says, once the, the original lands occupied by Native peoples, the title to that land became vested in the discovering nations of Europe. It became vested in the sovereigns, first the discovering nations of Europe, then the, the colonies, and then the United States. 
She doesn't say how it happened. She just says became vested. I mean, there's a whole step in there that's kind of missing. How could that, how could you, under the, this doctrine of discovery, Christian discovery, how do you make that rationale? How do you justify that? Well, you can only justify it through overt racism. This idea that a specific people that had a religious belief could assert a lie over other people. Other people that they viewed as inferior to them or not human at all. That's the history. That's the history that is not taught. And, and there's so much of that history. Look, Native people were enslaved. So even when we talk about black history, we talk about slavery, we leave Native people out of that conversation. When we talk about Jim Crow and, um, and civil rights, look, I'm going to admit, civil, the civil rights movement, Native people supported it, but that's not what we were fighting for. We weren't fighting for our civil rights, our constitutional rights. Every step along the way, we were fighting for our autonomy, our distinction. We weren't trying to become a part of the, you know, the great American dream, the great white hope. <laughs> the American dream was a nightmare for us. I saw somebody post something today that said, you know, people don't realize that Native people are living in a post-Apple, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, a dystopian future. The apocalypse did happen to us. We're still here. And nobody wants to teach about that. Nobody wants to explain how it is that Native people maintain a level of resiliency and resistance. And that we, many of us, are still fighting for our autonomy, our distinction, and our sovereignty. That's something, I mean, the, the, the way Americanism, American exceptionalism is promoting, oh, that's why all the people want to come here. That's why the United States is an immigrant. Everybody wants to come here. They don't acknowledge the fact that part of the reason that people want to come here is because this is the land that's stealing their resources. They want to enjoy some of the, the wealth and the affluence that the United States has, has built on their backs, on their impoverished nations, on their peoples, on their, on their land. It isn't, it isn't as simple to say, oh, they come here for freedom. I mean, they get treated like crap when they come here anyway. Unless you're Norwegian or Swedish, if you're white, then yeah, you're welcome as immigrants. But if you're brown, if you're part of a population that used to migrate in and out of North and Central South America, no, we're putting a stop to that. But if, you're, if you want to come here on a boat or a plane, oh yeah, come on. If you're going to come here on a boat or a plane from Europe, I mean, this is the overt racism that exists today. But I'll tell you, because we are not mentioned in history, bringing history to, to con contemporary times, there is no understanding and there's no perspective that can be gained in any of, of what is taught. You don't, you don't know to question what you see on television or what you read in, you know, in Louis L'Amour <laughs> novels. No, you don't know to question any of it. 
because it's all the same narrative. Romanticizing our existence and our demise. I said it before and I'm going to say it again. When I listen to Barack Obama stand up, first black president of the United States, right? Stand up and praise the Homestead Act, a law signed by Lincoln that caused an incredible amount of conflict. And he never addresses the conflict that it causes. He just praises the frontier, the bravery and the courage and the persistence of those Americans who traveled west to claim land on the Homestead Act. Well, who the hell did you think they were claiming it from? And it isn't just land. That land is what sustained Native people. So when you take away our land, I mean, the, the United States had a policy of mass slaughter of buffalo. I, you know, if you ever see the picture, you can find it sometimes. This mountain of buffalo skulls heaped up. They would actually give people, as they were putting the railroad through native lands, they would actually give people guns to shoot out the windows of, the, uh, of those, you know, not break the windows, but, but take those guns and shoot from the train if they came across a herd of buffalo, just to murder the buffalo. Why? Because that's what native people were living on in that, in that area. That was a part of what sustained their lives. You want to kill Indians? Kill buffalo. That's what they said. You want to kill Indians? Kill their means to support themselves. George Washington, in his orders to Sullivan, his general, told them, do not accept any pleas for peace. Destroy all the food in the ground and all the food that they've stored and make it impossible for them to plant again. Because the Seneca needed to know the level of the chastisement. The chastisement. The terror of that chastisement is what he said. Yeah, they needed to know the terror of the chastisement that they would get from the United States. George Washington included the word terror. So he had a policy of committing terrorism against Native people. He wanted to create intergenerational trauma. He wanted to do something, make the land unlivable. Not only were people killed, there's no documentation on how many people starved because of what George Washington's Sullivan campaign created, the poverty, the lack of food. That's your founding father. That's, you know, Father of America, or whatever they call him, I don't know. That's why we call it Run of the Gaius. My, my buddy says Ronnie de Gaius. I know. <laughs> Run of the Gaius. It means it loosely translates to town destroyer. But more accurately, the word evokes the image of tearing away flesh. It's a it's a word that's in a way connected to the word that we have for shark or or how we would describe a rabid dog. Because it's not just about eating the flesh. It's not just about them consuming us. It's just about shredding, tearing away at the flesh, the fabric of our souls, of our being. Yeah, we called George Washington run the Gaius, but then we came to understand that everybody who sat in that presidency, everybody, the great white father, yeah, not so much, not from us. No, it was run the guys. And you know what? We would, when we would send letters, when we would correspond with the White House, with the President of the United States, we would actually put that word down. And ironically, we even begin to forget what the word means. We, we associate that word with the President of the United States. The, 
I heard a story one time that uh, that the Seneca Nation, after it you know had done away with the well, the the clan system had already faded, and now what was existing was a, a chief system. So when they had a constitutional government with elected councils and uh, and a president and executives, that they had a plaque on the on the desk in front of where the the president of the Seneca Nation would sit, and it said "Run the Run the, the guys." I mean, it's like you don't even know that it meant town destroyer, and that it meant one who causes destruction. No, they only associated with the, with the president because that's it become such a common vernacular in our language and in, in our people to refer to, to that use that word for the for the president of the United States. Our people forgot what it meant, what it literally meant, and, and you know this is. This is the challenge. When you eradicate a language in the way the United States did to the Haudenosaunee, what we're left with is only the remnants of a language, and it too becomes just native labels for, for, for white things, for white man's things. Fortunately, we, we do have native speakers and people who are not just fluent, but know the, the etymology of words. So we're able to recapture some of what was lost. But that loss isn't an accident. That loss isn't some natural occurrence. The loss of identity, of language, of autonomy. I say it all the time. That period of residential schools where our children were ripped from the homes and the communities sent to these residential schools that were like prisons, oftentimes never to go home because their homes may not have been there. Because during that period of time, we experienced the largest population loss, the largest land loss, and the largest loss of our identity. And that identity has to do with sovereignty, distinction, language, culture. And I don't want to just say culture. Many, many people will say, well, yeah, we, we experienced cultural genocide. For one thing, there's no such thing as cultural genocide. There's genocide that can be perpetrated by wiping out a culture, by killing people, by sterilizing uh, men and women, by stealing children, or by doing any other physical or mental harm to people that was, caused them to, to cease to exist. That's what the definition of genocide is. It isn't just killing. It's a whole lot more. So you don't need to stick the word culture or cultural in front of the word genocide. You don't need to say paper genocide because, wow, we just terminated you on this piece of paper here. No, that paper is not what does it. It's what follows. Or I've heard, I've heard people say political genocide. Well, it's genocide. And that's not taught. The Holocaust is taught. And sometimes the, the, the word that comes with that, which is the word genocide, is taught. But look, genocide wasn't, that word wasn't coined for us. None of that stuff was, you know, none of the, the, the language associated with genocide or denationalization or anything, none of that international concern over ethnic cleansing had anything to do with us. Why? Frankly, they didn't care. But when ethnic cleansing happens in Europe, or when the United States can say, oh, look what China's doing to the Uyghurs. When you can politicize something, but look, the rest of the world just look the other way when the United States 
committed a coup against the Hawaiian kingdom. The Hawaiian kingdom had close to 200 embassies throughout the world, had treaties, recognition, international recognition. They were the only non-European, and I would say non-Christian, but that's a little hard because along with that recognition of, as nations, oftentimes it's tied to well, whether somebody has, you know, adopted their, their religious beliefs. But, but the Hawaiian kingdom was the only brown nation to be accepted into the family of international recognition. And all of those nations looked the other way when the United States committed its coup against them. White men who were allowed to live in Hawaii and to become Hawaiian subjects said, nah, we overthrew the kingdom. Now the we are the Republic of Hawaii, and we white men rule this land. And we want to be annexed by the United States. All the Hawaiians say, oh, hell no, we don't. In fact, there's a whole other conversation going on today, because during the Barack Obama administration, there was an attempt to turn Native Hawaiians into Indian tribes. And what did the Hawaiian people think of that? Again, oh, hell no. We know what you did to Native people on the continent. We don't want to, we're, we're not signing up for that. They understood that Fed Rec meant a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. They're saying, no, we, we still believe we have the right to assert our autonomy, our distinction, our sovereignty. We don't think that there was ever a legitimate end put to the Hawaiian kingdom. And all the rest of the world just looked the other way. Just look the other way. The United States was actually teaching the European nations how to deal with indigenous populations. They were, they were oftentimes invited to be at the table, even as Europe was slicing and dicing Africa. The United States wasn't there for a slice. They were there to teach the other nations how to, how to deal with indigenous populations. That's the history. You want to talk about American exceptionalism? The thing that the United States was most excep exceptional at was slavery and genocide. And slavery is partially genocide. Because if you take a people and you alter every aspect of their character, and then you implement and you subject them to another national character or or cultural character, you've essentially eliminated those people as the people who they once were. And now you have something new. And that's why when we're talking about civil rights versus the human right that Native people are fighting for, because our human right says we have a right to exist as something that's outside of the United States, politically and culturally and socially. The rest of the world says, yeah, that's true. They, they passed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's what they did. They passed it. And they passed it saying, this is the minimum standard. The, internationally, this is the minimum standard that nation states must adopt to maintain the dignity of Indigenous people, the survival of Indigenous people. United States and Canada can't meet that minimum standard. No, they, they try to alter it on every occasion. They, they violate it. In fact, what they say is, 
we're going to treat the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People as an aspirational agreement, meaning something, I, I heard Peter DeRico use this, he says, it's like the carrot that you put on the end of a stick in front of a horse to get a horse to keep going forward, never gets any closer to that carrot. That carrot is what the, much of the international community, well, especially the United States and, and Canada, they treat the UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, like that carrot. Now, we're not going to get there, but we're going to allow you to keep thinking you can get there. And we're going to put it there in front of you to show that we acknowledge that it's an aspiration, something that you walk towards, even if you never get there. That's what Obama said. Oh, yeah, we, we respect the aspirations of the UN Dec Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, provided it doesn't conflict with U.S. law. Well, what the hell do you think they passed it for? They passed this declaration because nation states like the United States and Canada, which both voted against it, by the way, they weren't meeting that minimum standard. Their laws were not meeting the minimum standard. In fact, the history of the United States and Canada has been a history of genocide. The antithesis of what the, the, the international community claims they were passing, of course, the the UN doesn't give any teeth to that declaration. And the United States gets to say, yeah, well, we, we don't need to follow that. That's, it's an aspirational agreement, but we aren't subject to what the United Nations passes. We aren't subject to the scrutiny of the international community. We're above that. In fact, the United States will claim to have moral authority on everything from human rights to... <laughs> Uh, rules of war. <laughs> they are the, the moral authority for who can have atomic and nuclear, nuclear and atomic weapons when they're the only country in the world that ever used it on civilian targets, no less. This is the mistake that any of us have when we read history prepared by the United States and treat it as if it's fact, as if it's truth. Because there are lies of omission. I mean, there's outright lies. But then there's lies of omission. I mean, does the United States ever really talk about the civilian populations that were not just bombed by the atomic weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the bombings that took place six months earlier of civilian targets? the largest aerial assault ever conducted, and this was done by multiple nations lining up. That's why the, the, the dropping of the atomic weapons weren't even necessary. Japan was on its knees already. It was already a defeated nation. But we built them. That's what Donald Trump says. Well, what's the sense of having them if we don't use them? Well, that's, that was the attitude back then. There has to be a reckoning of truth. And if you go through the American heroes, you're going to find it laced with white supremacy from George Washington to Joe Biden, including every one of them. Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was was a white supremacist. I mean, he admitted it. He said it. He ran on, the poli on, on a platform of white superiority. 
even as he was against slavery as an institution, as an economic driver, he knew that slavery was necessary. He didn't outlaw slavery. He just basically said, you could only enslave people if you prosecuted them. Well, what a coincidence that when you go into any prison system, you're going to find a disproportionate number of black people. I mean, is it a coincidence, really? And it's not just black people. It's people, of uh, all marginalized people. But it's the most obvious is, that, why are there so many black people in prison? Don't white people commit crimes? Yes, they do. And they do it at the same proportionate ratio that black people do, but they don't end up in prison the same way. The prison system was built to perpetuate slavery. Police departments were built, were born out of, out of slave trappers. I mean, this, and this is just history, but it's the true history, the history that's not taught. So again, I ask the question, can you claim to be teaching history if you leave out major portions of, of, a, of a distinct people? Like you said, can you, can you really teach American history and not mention slavery? Not mention the Holocaust? Then how can you teach history and not talk about the people who were eliminated, the inhabitants of this land before white people got here. And, and not just characterize it as, oh, it was just natural. They didn't have resistance to the same disease Europeans have. Come on, that's BS. Everybody knows that. We lived a healthy, sustainable life for thousands and thousands of years. You think your venereal diseases and your, and your whooping cough is what, what eliminated our population? I'm not saying we weren't affected by it, certainly. But much of the disease was spread intentionally. Again, including venereal disease, the rape culture that came from Europe. I mean, when Captain James Cook goes to um, uh, the Pacific and comes upon Hawaii, he knows that if his men go ashore, that a significant percentage of that population was going to die because his men were all harboring venereal diseases. He knew it. Why did he, how did he know it? Because he'd already done it on every pristine territory they ever went to. So um, this is, and this is known history. This is written by the people who were doing it. Lord Jeffrey Amherst. I mean, we got an Amherst near, uh, as a suburb of Buffalo, the Amherst here in uh uh, not just Boston, but Buffalo, Lord Jeffrey Amherst, he documented the desire to use disease blankets to eliminate native population. It's, it's the first documented, again, I already said, Washington, you know, documented clearly the use of terrorism. Well, before him, Lord Jeffrey Amherst was, was documenting the use of chemical warfare. It would be wise to use these infected blankets against native people to eliminate our population. This is the history. This is what isn't taught. That's my show, folks. I wanted to present 
this topic to make you think a little bit. So I'm hoping I did provoke some thought, and I'm hoping we can continue the conversation. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh. Yeah.